This week, hopefully, you all had a good Thanksgiving. Like I said earlier, I had a wonderful Thanksgiving. It was actually good to be back in town and be able to see family for Thanksgiving. That's normally celebrations we don't get to be a part of. Living down in Tennessee, we would not come back up. So it was a good week and had a great time seeing family. But that's not, only the, other, that's not the only good thing that happened this week. Earlier in the week, something wonderful happened. I was sitting at home with my kids, and Nora had finished eating, and she said, Dad, can I get a treat? which is usually like, after I'm done eating, do I have permission to go get some sweet stuff? I said, yeah, you can go get a treat. She goes, all right. And she disappears for a few seconds, and she comes back and says, Dad, all the candy's gone. And I said, is it? I knew we were getting close, but we had quite a haul from Halloween, and it was still around the house. Like, there have been multiple stashes around the house, like cans, because you've got to sort out the chocolate versus the fruity stuff, right? So it's in different places. And... Sure enough, I got up, and I checked this can, and yep, that one's empty. And I checked this one, it's empty too. Oh, good news, the candy's gone. Temptation is out of my house. I feel good, right? Because I got a sweet tooth like nobody's business. And so Nora, although, is not as happy about this as I am. And she says, but I want a treat. And I said, well, here's some other possible options. She goes, no, we're out of that. I was like, oh, sorry. Like, you really like gum? There's gum. No, I don't want gum, Dad. I want candy. Well, sweetheart, we don't have any candy in the house but I want candy. I'm like, Nora, there is no candy in the house. I know you want it, but no matter how bad you want it, I just can't make it appear. Like, I wish I had a little magic wand to wave around through the air and candy would magically appear for you. That's a lie because that would be a really, really bad thing for me to have. Really, really bad thing for me to have. But in this moment, I'm kind of like, I, I know you ate your lunch well. I wish I could give you something sweet. Here's like really the only option I have to offer. I'm sorry, that's all I have. And she was really bummed. But a few minutes later, five or so minutes later, she comes back in and she's like, Dad, I want candy. I'm like, Nora, I know you want candy. I know you desire it. It will not, no matter how bad you want it, it will not magically appear in our house. Like, I just, we're not going to the store to buy some right now. We're not doing anything. Like, no matter how bad you want it to be, it's not just going to be there, right? And it kind of got me thinking about a family. As we've been talking about this series of next gen and how do we invest in the next generation, it got me thinking about this family that I knew once upon a time, and they had some boys in um, the mom came to me one day and said, you know, hey, um, we're, we're, we're kind of worried about our son. We just don't know that he's really engaging in the word. He's really getting into church. Like he just feels kind of disconnected. We don't know if that's just for us in the main services or if you're noticing that in the youth group too. And, and I said, well, you know, tell me more. And we talked a little bit about it and just concerned that not really animated in worship and not really expressing himself in some ways and not really doing this, that, or the other. And I'm kind of sitting there, and I wish that I was a little better equipped then, felt like I had a little bit more of the boldness that I would like to think I have now, to have a deeper, more meaningful conversation in that moment. But I've often looked back at that story in that moment, and I felt like it was kind of like the mom wanted the same thing Nora wanted. Because I looked at that family and started to think about it, and I said, you know, you're kind of wanting something out of your son that doesn't exist in a couple of places. Number one, you're wanting something out of your son that doesn't really exist in your own family. Like there's some really timid and, and kind of timid and held back worship from you and expression. And, and I, and I kind of wonder like there's kind of like a, an in and out involvement. And dad was pretty, 
I, I wouldn't have known if dad cared about Jesus or not if we hadn't had some conversations. And I'm saying, I think you're wanting something from your son that maybe you yourself are not exhibiting. How can I expect them to get something if you don't have it? And they're not being shown that. And on a broader scale, if we looked at the rest of the room, honestly, most Sundays, I'm like, are you wanting something that doesn't really exist even in this room? Because for the most part, our people were not really expressive. It was hard to gauge whether they actually meant the words that they were singing. And I said, do we want our kids to grow beyond what we actually have? And sometimes I think we hope and desire that they'll get the treat. They'll get the lifelong follower of Jesus status, even though we haven't necessarily provided the bowl of it in the house, as an example. And if our desire is for them to just kind of catch on and run with it and be it and do it, without any kind of clear example of what that looks like and what that means... If they are not constantly surrounded by and walking alongside of people who are living out that committed following of Christ, how can we expect them to go beyond that? Now, some of us may be living out that example, but the question is, what are our realistic expectations? And if I were to evaluate my own life, kind of like we talked about last week, would I be happy with my kids settling for the type of relationship with Christ that I myself have? And when I say my kids whether you do have kids in the house or not, would I be content with the next generation staying in the exact same place in their relationship with Christ as I myself have? And that's a tough question to ask because if we're all honest with ourselves, we might feel good about the fact that we are Christ followers. We may feel committed in the sense that we are here, but I would say that many of us would wrestle with, the, wrestle with that struggle of are we really... Like, what I wish my relationship on someone else, I know the truth of how committed it is. I know the truth of how deep it is. Is that really the goal and the standard I would set for someone else? And so we have to wrestle with this question and start to s- and talk about how we make this whole investment in the next generation personal. How do we make it personal by saying, I can only give what I have. I can't give Nora candy I don't have. I can't see children go beyond where I myself am. I can't lead people past where I am in my own walk because I don't have that to offer. And so therefore, I have to make this pursuit of investment personal in saying, what is it I can give, and to what point can I bring someone along? If I'm not investing in my own relationship, how can I offer it to anybody else? And so we're going to look at Scripture and talk about that for a few minutes today. But before we get into that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, I love you, and I'm thankful for your word, and I'm thankful for the fact that you died on a cross, and that that veil was torn, and we had the opportunity to come into your presence. Because, Father, the only way we can grow and be transformed and our minds can be renewed is by basking in your presence and living and dwelling in your presence and gleaning off of your word and hearing from your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we recognize and give you thanks this morning for the fact that you have provided us that opportunity to learn and to grow and to be strengthened in our walk with you through the sacrifice of your son. And so this morning, Father, we just pray that through your word and through your presence, we would grow this morning and really wrestle with the standard we set for ourselves and wrestle with what we can and cannot control so that we can make deeper, more lifelong investments in your kingdom through our lives and through our commitment. We love you. It's in the wonderful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So there's another book. You got one plug for a book a minute ago, the 
Letters to the Church by Francis Chan, but there's another book that I really like and appreciate. I read it, uh, oh goodness, probably seven years ago or so. Um, not long after I got down in Tennessee, uh, we got a new pastor in, and he had recommended this book to us by Wayne Cordero called uh, Divine Mentor. And in Divine Mentor, Wayne Cordero talks a lot about um, how we ourselves tend to and get into the habit sometimes of reading a lot of literature from other pastors and other leaders. And so therefore, we read a lot of this preacher, and we read a lot of this author, and we read a lot from this scholar, and we tend to start gleaning a lot of information from them. But the more we read from other people, sometimes the less and the less we turn to these pages. And the whole premise of this book is that because of God's Word being given to us and because of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, that if we're spending committed time to daily learning and gleaning from God's Word, we have a divine mentor in Christ and God and His Word and the, the living Word made flesh that's been provided to us. And how we need to be careful not to rely solely on outside sources, but to lean on the Word that was given. And he uses this illustration in the book that I wanted to share with you this morning. We talked last week about pie charts a little bit, like briefly, and said if we were to split up our lives and take our bank accounts, and we were to take our calendars, and we would kind of spread them out on what we spend our money on, what we spend our time on, and we gave it to somebody else all broken down, what would they say that we serve? What would they say we value? What would they say our priorities are if they were evaluating our lives based off those two pie graphs? And Wayne Cordero talks about a different kind of pie graph in our lives, and he starts with 80%. He says, 80% of the things that you do in your life could be done by literally anyone else. Sleeping, eating, driving, maybe not Silas. I wouldn't let Silas drive your car. Bad idea, probably. But literally anybody else who's old enough to do that, like there's a large majority of the population without any kind of real extra training can do a lot of what you do on a daily basis when you take the big chunks of our time. Hopefully most of us know how to sleep. Good. Um, or at least eventually get there, right? There's a large chunk of what we spend our time doing that anyone can do. And then he says there's this other 15%. This other 15% of the stuff we do is kind of like our jobs or some of the tasks we do around the house. And with a, a minimal amount of training, minimal amount of education, anyone else could take over those roles and those responsibilities, that those portions of what we do could be covered by somebody else with a limited amount of Um, training and involvement. And so he kind of builds this picture that 95% of what we do is probably something that could be handed off to someone else. Sleep is probably not true of that, but it's something that doesn't, somebody else can't sleep for you. I wish that could be the case because like there's a lot of benefit I I could gain from getting rest from somebody else's sleep. I'd provide a lot more hours in my day. It'd be cool. But all that being said, When we take this whole big pie and the fact that everybody else can do all these things, there's left with this 5% sliver of the things that no one else can do for you. That 5% that's left to be saying, no one else can be a good husband for me. I have to do that on my own. I have to make an investment in me being a good husband. No one else can invest in how good of a father I am. I have to invest in being a good father. No one else can invest in my spiritual walk. And relationship. No, they can invest in it. They can, they can try to bring me along. We've got people in our lives who pour into you, but no one else can actually 
surrender their heart and their life in a way that allows them to actually grow. You, no one else can do that for me. I have to make time to be in God's word. I have to make time to pray. You can teach me everything you want. That doesn't mean I have to hold on to it. And he kind of paints this picture of this 5% sliver of the things in your life that there's just no one else who can tackle these things for you. It is only you who are responsible for these things in your life. The kind of neighbor you are, the kind of parent you are, the kind of the investment in who you are as a person. And we talk about that kind of concept that these, these significant pieces of who you are and who your, what your character is made up of and what you do in this world, only you can control. And we look at the example of Jesus, I think there's something to be said about these passages that we could go on and on and on about if we looked at the Gospels and the life of Jesus. I'm going to rattle off several, so I would recommend probably not trying to flip around, but if you have that little section of notes on your bullets in there, you can jot a few of these down. Luke chapter 6, verses two, or verse 2, he's about to talk and kind of separate out the disciples. He's got these, all these disciples that are following him, but he kind of narrows the 12 down to choose them as apostles, kind of narrowing it down to those 12 who will be known as apostles. And before he does that, he gets away and he prays all night long. Jesus gets away and prays all night long. Mark 6, 46, after discussing and t- with the crowds and teaching with the crowds, he dismisses them, dismisses them, and he goes away to pray and spend time in solitude. Matthew 14, 23, he goes up and he goes away alone by himself to pray. Mark 1, 35, he gets up before everyone else All the disciples, all the other people in the house, the people he's spending time with before any of the rest of them get up, he gets up and goes out to a quiet place and prays. Luke 5.16 says he would often slip away by himself to pray. Luke 9.18, praying. When he's praying, he's spending time alone, quiet in prayer. I almost couldn't read my own handwriting there. That's the pause that's fun. You're going, what did I write? Oh, yeah. He, right, he gets away, and he's praying alone, and then he kind of, he's not praying alone, he's praying there with the disciples, but in the midst of the crowds, he himself is there praying, and he kind of stops praying for a moment, and he asks the disciples, who does everyone say that I am? And then finally, Matthew 26, 36, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane alone, asking his disciples to keep watch while he prays, and we know that story re-agonizes throughout the night, knowing that he's about to go face the cross, and he's alone, praying so adamantly, That he's sweating blood. Jesus sets this example and tone to get away alone, to take a few. He gets up to the mountain of transfiguration, another story, and he goes and and he's kind of transformed in this moment. And they see this glorious kind of heavenly presence of who Jesus is. And he's there with Elijah and Moses. And they're up on the mountain in this incredible moment in God's presence. And he takes a few with him. And these three are so taken in by this presence and this moment of worship that they just want to stay, and he says, no, we still have things to do. This is a moment, this is a time, but now we have to go back. And we look at these stories where Jesus takes the intentional time to invest and to pray and to stay connected to the Father, and he talks about it in Scripture. I am the, like he says, I am the vine, you're the branches, you have to stay connected to me. And he talks about this relationship, he says, as I am connected to the Father, as I and the Father are one, you have to be one through me. And he's talking about this relationship, this connection that has to be maintained. If Jesus is continually 
constantly getting away alone to pray and stay connected to the Father when John chapter 1 tells us that He is the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We are talking about God's Son, God in the person of Jesus, who is Himself God, needs to stay connected to the Father and investing in time alone. And if Jesus has to do that, to stay in tune and to stay on task and to stay going the direction he needs to go, to have the strength and the will to overcome the cross and to keep his eyes fixed on what's most important, what makes us think that we don't? But we go back to that chart and we start talking about what it is we focus our time in. How much of my effort and energy is invested at my role as a husband? How much of my energy and time is invested in my role as a father? How much of my energy and time is invested in my spiritual walk and growth? If It's not saying that we only spend 5% of our time doing that. He's saying that there's a small portion of who we are and what we are. Anybody else can be the next greatest thing at our job. Anybody else can be really great at getting a lot of sleep and doing that really well. Anybody else can do really well at doing a lot of the other things that we do. But no one else can make Nick DeFore a great father. No one else can make Nick DeFore a great husband. No one else can make Nick DeFore a, a great or a, even a decent follower of Jesus Christ. I have to pour into the investment in how important those things are to me and what I can do. Whether it's being a good neighbor, whether it's being a good friend, whether it's being any of those things, my character and my relationship and my walk have to be my responsibility. No one else can do that for me. Coming in here and sitting and listening to Nick talk for who knows how long? Probably too long. Any given week does not check off a box and somehow make me a better follower of Christ. Showing up and checking off that mark to say I showed up today does not make me a better follower of Christ. Because he says pick up your cross daily and follow me. To be following and doing what we're called to do, we have to make sacrifice and surrender and give of ourselves and pick up our cross daily, die to ourselves and follow. Take active steps to be in relationship with him. Because ultimately, if we hope to give anything to anybody, whether it's the next generation, whether it's our neighbor, whether it's our coworker, it doesn't matter who it is, I cannot offer them more than I have. There's this beautiful moment a minute ago, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but hey, it worked itself out, and it was one of those things, I, beautiful moment just a few minutes ago. I'm sitting right there, and we're taking communion. And our kids being in the room, that, and Elliot has been with us at different times. She would want to come to a service and sit with us, and so we'd take communion. We would talk to her. She hadn't made a commitment to follow yet, and so she wasn't partaking, but she was sitting there. And we would take those opportunities as we held the elements, not to make it all about ourselves and just me quiet. Shh, leave me alone. I'm doing grown-up time here. And scoot her off to the side. We would bring her in and say, hey, why are we doing this? And we would talk to her about what this means and what Jesus did and why it's important. And we would share with her why I'm doing this and what the significance of it is. And we've done that time and time again. You might see us kind of whispering to our kids during communion. We're not telling them to be quiet and sit down. I promise. Like a lot of times it's that same conversation week in and week out. And I love having it. But what was beautiful this morning, fantastic, because I didn't say a word. Ellie is sitting next to me and Silas is now our cup collector. Like he likes to take the cups when we're done and put them in the, the spot there. So that's his job. He's waiting to do his job. But he's heard the spiel. But it's funny because Elia says, Silas, what's this? And he starts telling her. And she goes, and why do we do this? And he starts telling her. And then she's like, hey, here's the juice. Or what is this? He says, juice. And why do we do this? 
Jesus' blood. Why do we do this? You know, she is now handing off what I've handed to her. She may not have all the deep theological answers to everything else in Scripture, but she's giving what she has. We sometimes think that we have to reach this level of being way over here in order to offer anything. The reality of it is we are called to pick up our cross daily, be investing in what we have, and offering whatever it is we're finding, whatever it is we're getting, whatever it is we're learning to the next person, and handing it down. In fact, it's actually the opposite sometimes of what we think it is. We think we have to have all these answers to be able to impact the next generation. It's simply not true, because I watched college student after college student who was going to Johnson University come into my youth group down in Tennessee, and they would come in, and they would get frustrated sometimes at the simplicity of the lesson. They would get frustrated and say, we should be talking about this. Or they would get up and have the opportunity to talk, and they would just talk over the kids' heads, and the kids would be like, what is he saying? This is ridiculous. Why is he still talking? Can you make him stop now? And I would get this feedback from kids going, yeah, that guy wasn't so good. And I just kind of smile and say, he was trying really hard, and he did a good job. He just probably bit off more than he could chew because what he was trying to do was trying to say, man, I learned this stuff in high school and it was fine and all, but now I'm learning this. And wow, this is opening up my eyes and I'm so excited and I'm learning all these deeper truths and I'm really eating this steak and I'm really diving in. I got the the knife and the fork and I'm going to town on steak. The problem is this kid is still an infant on like formula, right? The milk. And you're trying to cram steak down his throat. And it's not going to work for a toddler. It's not going to work for this kid either. You have to understand that you're speaking to an audience that's in a different place. And though I may say, man, there's so much more I want you to understand about God's word. We all started somewhere in our journey and our walk. Understanding the most basic truths. What's this cup about? It's Jesus' blood. Why do we take it? To remember that Jesus died for us. And the simplest truth that my 10-year-old can pass to my 3-year-old is discipleship at its best. You sharing your story and what you've been through and what you've gone through and how you've learned and how you've grown and what significance those early stories in your life meant to you and what those truths meant to you in that moment is helping someone walk along that road. Us wrestling with different ways that Christ has impacted our life is always beneficial because sometimes if we go over here and start to say, okay, here's this deep theology that I need you to understand how these books connect and how these passages come together, it's not that complicated. Sometimes it's simply a matter of saying, no, man, that story came to life for me when I was here and this is what was going on. And man, I love that story because what God taught me through it here. And when we can personalize that and help someone walk in to our life and realize what we received from that moment, it makes such a tremendous impact. And discipleship, the act of giving what we have, becomes so much simpler. Because we take away the complication of needing to have all these deep, heavy answers, and we make it the simple truth of saying, here's what God accomplished in my life. The trick is, if I only have three stories to offer, Because I got content with what I knew and I think I know the rest and so I've gotten busy with work and I've gotten busy in investing and being the best at my job and I've gotten busy at investing in this and that and the other thing and I get so busy with the 15 things I got going and I got busy because honestly I got watching this show on Netflix and binge watched like all 17 seasons of it. That took up a fair bit of time and understand what I'm saying like we just get so consumed with other things that don't matter that we don't keep investing. 
And I shared the three stories I have to share, but there aren't really new stories because I'm not picking up my cross daily and continuing to walk in his presence. It's about progressing down the line, doing what I can, and at the same time also knowing when I need to hand the baton off to somebody else. When it's time for me to get out of the way and let God continue to work through somebody else. Have you met my friend so-and-so? Man, they are really, they've been a huge impact in, in, in my life, and, and they've taught me so much. I want you to meet them. Maybe it's about introducing them to more people, widening that circle as we continue to disciple. disciple it's about widening that circle, which we talked about a few weeks ago. It's also about the, the fighting for the heart, helping people understand that the reason I follow is because of this. It's not just dumping all the facts on them. It's about helping them see the heart behind why I follow and the heart behind God that should make them want to follow. We talked about that at one point. We talked about all these different factors. They all come together, and they are all an important part of not just reaching the next generation, but in broad discipleship on the whole. And I love... This story in John chapter 3, and you can turn there. We're going to kind of wrap up with this one. John chapter 3 is one of those things we, one of those chapters we uh, are familiar with if we look at the beginning of it, because Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and we get this story of Jesus and Nicodemus talking, and he's saying John 3.16 and John 3.17, and passages we're very familiar with. But if we move on a little further down the way in that chapter, there's a story I feel like gets often overlooked, and it breaks my heart because I love this, and it's, it's really come to life to me, and here's me just sharing something with you that's really been coming to life for me and getting me excited the last couple of years. John chapter 3, starting in verse 22, Jesus has been teaching, right? And his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. And John was also baptizing, at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and the people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now, starting in verse 25, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was, uh, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness... Look, he's baptizing, and, are, and all are going to him instead of you. So let me paint this picture. This is kind of going on where John and Jesus are both here now in the same area baptizing people. And there's this argument going on, and they're kind of saying, Hey, that guy, you baptized him, and now he thinks he's in charge, and everybody's going to him to get baptized. And, and they're, they're going over there, and what are you going to do about this? Like, this is a big deal. He's kind of honing in on your turf. This is your spot. You're supposed to be teaching people here. You're supposed to be building them up and growing them. You're supposed to be investing in what's happening here. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John is here saying, look, you don't understand. The only reason I'm here is not so that I can make a name for myself. We are not talking about how we make it personal so that we can win millions to Jesus. This is not about us building a name for ourselves because look how amazing I was. Look how much I poured into the next generation. Look how much I brought people along. 
Look how wonderfully I've widened the circle. Look at all these things. It's not about developing a name for ourselves. John is saying, look, I was only ever here to lead the way for him so that he could do the work in someone's life. I am personally growing in my relationship with him, and I, my responsibility, my hope, my effort, everything I'm doing is to bring people alongside of me as far as I can get so that I can put them into his hands and he can run the rest of the way with them. Because there's a certain point where I'm only going to be able to offer so much, but I'm pursuing and I'm going this way, and there's going to come a point where I've taught them everything they need to know. I've accomplished everything I need to accomplish, and here they are with me, and now all of us are just following him, and I am just now standing here and supporting and cheering because ultimately what we've done is we've ushered someone into the bridegroom's presence, and they have become part of the body of Christ, his bride, and they're chasing after him with all their heart. And John is saying, this wasn't about me gaining a name for myself. It wasn't about me getting anything out of it. It's about me loving the bridegroom and being in relationship with him and being a part of this process. And now I have to get out of the way so that he can continue and finish the work. He must increase and I must decrease. And there comes a point in all of this process where we simply have to realize we are humbly pursuing a Savior who has rescued all of us. And if we stop pursuing those around us will take the example that they can stop pursuing, that there's a certain point where I've achieved enough and everything's cool and comfortable right here where I'm at. If all of us are pursuing and chasing after him with everything we have and we're continuing to do the work but not saying this is about me, pointing everyone back to him, if we're doing this with a humble heart and helping people understand the heart behind why we follow, if we're bringing as many people into the process as possible to widen that circle so more and more voices are saying the same things, if we are doing this with the end in mind where we recognize and realize what the end goal is, we can accomplish so much, and not just reaching the next generation, but reaching any neighbor, friend, coworker, relative, anybody in the process. But I have to take it seriously, I have to take it personally, and I have to take it as my responsibility to stay involved and keep going. And so the question is, this morning, have we made this ministry, this call to go and make disciples, this calling in our life, just like John had, have we made it personal, have we kept it the most important thing, have we put it first and said, I need to inc- or he needs to increase in my life, I need to decrease. The stuff that's all about me needs to decrease, the stuff that's all about him needs to increase. People need to see more of him and less of me. Everything in my life needs to be about accomplishing the purpose and the task he set me to, which is go into every nation making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit so that they might come to know me and be a part of that bride and to be a part of that body. And so we have to pick up the word, pick up the call, continue to invest and make this personal to say I'm a part of this and I need to continue to be a part of this and I have to make this one of my most important goals because if I'm not pouring into the next generation those who are right here at my disposal right here right now the easiest ones to get a hold of Elia and Silas are right there and their ears are right next to my lips and I have the most access to them that I will ever have and if I can't reach them and invest in them in, in disciple them and lift them up and build them up in the right way, what makes me think I could ever accomplish that in the life of my neighbor who's had 40, 50 years of hard heart and rough experience and bad example and bad taste in their mouth and all kinds of other stuff that's going on in their life? What makes me think I could ever reach them if I can't 
invest in the one I've already been given the opportunity to invest in. And the same is true of us. If we're not investing in the next generation, if we're not pouring into the gift and the asset that has been given to us by God to continue on the future of the church, to continue on the building of his kingdom right here in this place, what makes us think we could continue to invest beyond these walls? And so the challenge exists. We have to make this personal and get into the mix and say, how am I widening the circle in someone's life? How am I pouring into the kids around this place? How am I connecting? How am I continuing to pour into myself so that I can grow so I have more to offer? How can I continue to get involved in what I've been called to do? So I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning, and we're going to sing. And I simply want you to wrestle with God this morning and say, God, if I were to take my life and my relationship with you, would I feel comfortable setting that as a goal for the next generation? Would I be happy or content at saying, I could never bring anyone past this point? And if the answer is no, then God, what do you still need to do in me? And where do I need to open myself up still to you every day and continue to grow? God, help give me the energy that I need to accomplish that. And so this morning, I simply just want you to surrender yourself to him. If you need to pray for something else, there's other heavy things going on in your life, please come forward. We'd love to pray with you. If there's something you just want to talk about and wrestle with, we'd love to talk. Whatever it is that God's doing in your heart this morning, be obedient and listen and allow ourselves to decrease while he increases in this place. Father, I love you. And I'm thankful for your word, and I'm thankful for your truth, and I'm thankful for the, your example of so many times getting away and continuing to pour into your own connection to the Father. And Father, there are times where I spend a lot of time reading scripture, preparing, and it has no deep impact on me because I haven't given you the room to let it have a deep impact on me. And there are lots of times, Father, where I have conversations and miss opportunities, and there are so many moments where I still have so much room to grow. And Father, this morning I simply pray that you would help me to get out of the way. And for each and every one of us in this room who has obstacles or thoughts on our minds or things that are getting in the way of us pressing forward and growing in committed relationship to you, Father, I pray that you would help us to see the kind of examples we need to be and help us to get out of the way and make room for you so that we can continue to decrease and more and more people will see you through our lives. We love you and it's in the wonderful name of Jesus we pray.